he's referred to as the man in the back of the room and introduced as the voice of God. He's told U.S. presidents where to sit, given Tony and Grammy award-winning celebrities direction, and lectured scads of students. But as he likes to point out, the event entertainment expert you don't know, you don't know, Anthony Bellata. And Bellatified. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Velotified, the one and only podcast about event entertainment and engagement, the sometimes dazzling, sometimes tragic world that we live in. I'm Anthony Bellotta, and I'm here with my very number one Bellottophile, Alex Apostolidis. Hi, Alex. Hello, and happy day to you. Happy day. It's a gorgeous day today, I must say. I know. No, getting super excited because we are this close to my favorite time of year. When the clocks yep. go, what we spring ahead, we spring, spring ahead. Now, now I've heard that this may be the very last time that we spring ahead, but I'm not 100% sure because I haven't investigated myself, but I've been told that we will no longer be playing the daylight savings time game after this year, that we will just stay in in uh what is it pacific it's not pacific standard time it's pacific daylight time that we would stay in i keep getting different feedback on it some people say we'll stay like once we spring forward we stay that way other people say once we fall back we stay that way which i am hoping is not the case that's going to make me super sad same for me too because who wants to fall back and let (laughs) and have that be the last thing that happens Exactly. Mentally speaking, we all want to spring forward. (laughs) Plus, it's something to look forward to. So, you know, if we're going to stay and spring forward, okay. But if not, I literally tick down the weeks. I really look forward to it. I do too. It's like an. Both of us have birthdays in the pitch dark of the year. So, mine right after we turn the clocks back and yours a month later so and we both are both of us love the daylight Mm -hmm. so yeah we're we're in the same boat and but interestingly enough you know we used to do this a month later than we do Mm -hmm. now right and so when we first started um advancing the clocks earlier in the spring or i should say later in the winter uh that the first month after doing that was hard for me because later in the year, the daylight is already, the the day is already longer, but in March it's a bit shorter. So Mm -hmm. I'm still waking up in the dark and it's very hard, very hard until that first month goes by and then it gets a little bit easier. That was the beautiful thing about living in Seattle is that it, the days got longer quicker, it seemed like. So very quick soon after we, we turned, it was light at five in the morning until 10 at night. Well, the days there in the middle of summer and the summer equinox, the days are just so incredibly long there. They were I, awesome. I remember being there in May in, in, in Seattle in May one year, and it was 10 o'clock and the sun was still visible in the sky. Mm-hmm. Felt great. Oh, yeah. I have to miss it. I miss it a lot. But when you're in school, it's really, really hard because, you know, you're on a regimented schedule. You have to get up the same time every day, whether it's light or dark, 
And, you know, that's just the way it happens, right, when you're in school. And I wanted to bring that up because today we're going to be talking to somebody who wrote the curriculum on special events. And so going into that conversation, we thought we might talk a little bit about our own education and uh, what it is that we studied and, and how it's helped us in our careers today. Uh, and I'll start uh, to give Alex a bit of time to think about what she's done. I studied musical theater, right? So And so, and apparently Joe Jeff, who we're going to be speaking to later, was an actor himself and a magician. For me, it was a very uh, easy transition into the world of events. And, and it seems so that it was for him as well. Uh, even though I had no idea what the event world was, there was no such industry when I was you know, coming up. Uh, I just, I stumbled upon it. You know, I stumbled upon this group that was entertaining for events. I auditioned, I was cast, I became bored. You've heard this story before. I started answering phones, doing more and more and more just to be involved more and then found that it was really uh, a place for me. You know, this was a viable career path for me with my creative skills and, and uh, what little I thought I could do with regard to business at the time. So it, it was very, very, uh, it was, you know, it was a very easy transition. Uh, how about for you, Alex? You know, I came into this industry much later than you. And because of mm -hmm. you, uh, but it was the same thing. You know, I, from the time I was 13, I started in musical theater and that was my focus for the, you know, pretty much the rest of my life. Um, and even now somewhat, I'm not doing, I haven't done a traditional theatrical show in about, I think six years now, Yikes. Uh, but up until then, that's, that's what I did. I always worked other jobs, almost mm -hmm. always there was a good couple of years there where I was able to support myself solely as an actor. Yes. That was kind of, that was wonderful. It was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, that and, and voiceover and then started doing performing for you and events. And the next thing, you know, one day I'm in the office. <laughs> because I called Alex and I said, you know what? <laughs> I think you have the right personality for this kind of work. Would you be interested? Would you kindly help us? And I'll never forget. Um, I'll, I'll never forget because we were leaving an event that I was on, and you said I need to talk to you. I said okay. <laughs> I must have been having one of those midnight episodes when I was thinking, and you popped into my head. It must have happened before that conversation. Oh, Alex, Alex, Alex. You I know what happened to Alex? I can kind of tell you. I think I know when it happened. When did it happen? We were in the office rehearsing for the tourism thing, right? Yes, for the San Diego I, Tourism Authority, our right? Our fellow actor, um, Brian Feldman. Brian Feldman, having a conversation. And I was talking about my role as liaison uh, for Actors' Equity in San Diego. And I swear I saw this little light in your eyes go ding. You looked at me in a way that you'd never looked at me before. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought to yourself, oh my God, I'm in trouble. What did I do? <laughs> oh God. I had, now he's going to call. <laughs> I had just come off of helping to, and then finally at the end, really pulling together uh, the, the centennial celebration in San Diego that we had uh, at the Globe. And it right. was a lot of work um, and 
due to some circumstances, I had to kind of jump in and take over. So I want to just explain why that glint in my eye appeared when you mentioned that and why I felt that you would be a really good person to exploit as a bolotophile. <laughs> uh, I remember, you know, I've heard this said so many times, uh, you hire personality and then you train on the skills, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember having that light bulb go off in my head thinking, oh my goodness, Alex, not only is she a dynamic performer, not only is she a crack at getting her lines down, because that was one thing that really impressed me about that one, one particular time. You had your lines down immediately and there were plenty of lines for you to have. Uh, but there is, you have this attitude, you have this personality, this giving, this warmth, this nurturing personality, a patience that I don't possess myself, um, and a willingness to listen and to, uh, you know, to sort of wait out what you have to wait out to get where you need to be. You know, you're just a very patient person. And I needed somebody with those qualifications. I needed somebody I could trust. I'm very, very um, uh, client service minded, right? Um, I, I want to make sure that our clients always feel welcomed when they call, that they always feel like they're at the top of our minds. And I didn't have to, I knew instinctively I wouldn't have to teach you any of that. I knew that you shared that, that same kind of feeling about gratitude and clients. I could sense that immediately. And it's been that way. I, I was, I must say it was one of the times I was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you're right. You're right on with regard to customer service and understanding the needs of the client. Well, before they're even mentioned to you, you know, you, you have a sense a very giving sense. You 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 very easily lend yourself over to others, and give them a comfortable place to either express what they need or what they want or what they envision, and that's how you get the best out of people. You know, um. So I I hired you for personality and um and I kept you from leaving us a couple of times because I knew I was like I can't lose Alex. No way. <laughs> So it's thankfully still working out after, gosh, it's seven yes. years now, almost seven years. It's still working out. So when we were in school, this, the, uh, the idea of studying events, event management, hospitality, there was no curriculum to study. There was nothing available. And it wasn't a career path, quite honestly. Again, we just fell into this. And uh, now, thanks to our guest this afternoon, we, are, we have a curriculum, a very robust curriculum, and that curriculum continues to expand. Uh, Dr. Joe Jeff developed a program. Uh, there are now uh, bachelor degree programs and master degree programs in events, event management, hospitality, hotel management, you know, there are quite a few degree programs out there. So those coming into this industry now have a more of a direct road pathway to becoming an event specialist and event uh, 
planner, a meeting planner, uh, or any of the roles that can be filled in the in the industry itself, right? You don't have to be a planner, but you can support the industry in some way. So we're so excited to have him. Uh, but before we bring him on, um, Alex, why don't you tell us a few things about Dr. Joe Jeff? Some of us may well, not know. Uh, interestingly enough, he's the author of the very first textbook in the field of event management. And it's been continuously published for 30 years which is so amazing. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, he is author, co-author, and editor of 39 books in the event management industry, somewhere between 37 and 39. I think it's uh, 37, but yeah, he's not finished. So eventually it'll probably be 39. <laughs> he is the founding president of the International Special Events Society, which now we know as ILEA, the International Live Events Association, and the developer of the original CSEP uh, International Qualification Program. Yes, that's the certification program for event producers, event planners, the Certified Special Event Planner. That's that certification that he developed and uh, is now very, very, uh, still very pertinent in the industry. There are a lot of CSEPs that still continue to take the certification. It's, uh, it's quite an accomplishment, I know. What a great roadmap for everybody. He's also considered the foremost authority in the world of events. And he held the world's only professional chair in planned event studies for 10 years at Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh, Scotland. Wow. Let's welcome the beloved Dr. Joe Jeff Goldblatt. Hello, Dr. Joe Jeff Goldblatt. How are you? How are you? You look divine. You look you do too. The last time I saw you, I think we were having dinner in the gaslight section of uh, San Diego with my students. Yes. How do, do you, you know like when, that? When when was that? Three thousand years ago. Yeah, at least. You know, everything least. everything before COVID, I call three thousand years ago. Yes. <laughs> Who's that I lovely should... lass sitting on top of your head? <laughs> <laughs> that's where she belongs that's alex <laughs> alex meet dr hi, joe alex, jeff nice to hi so nice I, I always i always knew there was a woman head and shoulders above um anthony balada and now i know who it is yes <laughs> and i love that this is recorded because i can lord that over him now oh good use it anytime <laughs> you want anytime thanks you want. <laughs> it's yours now alex just have at it <laughs> Sorry, I lost the link. This happens because, you know, we no longer have addresses, links for everything in our lives. Mm -hmm. And too many Zooms today. Too many links, too many Zooms. No, yeah. no worries. It's great to see your face. How Thanks. are things in Scotland? How are things Fine. going? I wish I could wish I could point the camera out the window. But of course, it's dark here now. The good news is we had no deaths today from the coronavirus in the entire country. Isn't that a great way That's to celebrate the end of the day and yes. uh, we're we are down 40 percent uh in terms of uh, hospitalizations and infections because the whole country is completely shut down hmm. nothing is open and that, that's how you stop this thing you know that's right so are you teaching uh virtually like like the rest no, of I us retired, oh yeah that's right i forgot I retired you retired two years ago from teaching I... full time 
And uh, I do a lot of guest lectures now. In fact, I was supposed to be in New York this month for two months at New York University as distinguished visiting professor of hospitality, but they had a little thing called the coronavirus. So yes. we put it off till next year. Wow. Well, I hope that you do make it there. They can they can use the uh, the additional you know expertise. Well, it'd be fun to uh, to visit New York and see Jackie and all of our friends. Um, the um, uh, and also it'd be fun to just actually be in a classroom, looking at people face to face rather than zooming down a cable. You know. Yes, it's a it's a very different phenomenon trying to teach or learn through this apparatus. It's, it's, yeah. I, I teach a class at SDSU. It's an evening class. It's, it's a, uh, a, an event engagement class. And as I'm teaching it, I see people laying in bed, eating, you know, there's so many things that they're doing. It, it makes me wonder what they're thinking about. Well, at, <laughs> least, they, at least they have their camera on. A lot <laughs> of students don't want their faces to be seen. A friend of mine teaches in Orlando, and he requires them to have their camera on because, um, you know, he doesn't even know if they're there. It's like yeah. a black a black wall. Right, right. Did so, you know that? Did you know that historically, Anthony, since you're teaching online, there has been a lot of research on teaching online. There's been very little research about learning online. So the more you can do to help your students learn online, the better, such as giving them a tip sheet of five things they should do from the minute the camera goes live, you know, such as having beside them a dictionary, a tablet to take notes, uh, a place to Google further questions, uh, et cetera, et cetera, because what happens is the online learner tends to become more passive mm -hmm. and they have to be prodded to engage a little bit more. That makes complete sense. The passive student in the classroom is visible, right? You yeah. can see them at the back of the room. You can see they're not paying attention, but with all of the distance between us, that's much harder to see. And as you pointed out, if somebody doesn't have their camera on, I think you can most, you can pretty much guess if their camera isn't on, they're not engaged. Yeah, I well, you know, I did, a, I did a lecture about the Jewish community to one of our primary schools online this week. And I don't know what it's like in San Diego. Are, you, are your schools open again? Some of them are, some of them aren't. The public yeah. schools are closed. Majority of ours are closed, but they've just put primary one through three back in school. Anyway, the kids' eyes were like this. Uh, vacant, you know, uh, very yes. different from when you're in a classroom with them. And I think it's because they're learning by themselves in the house with maybe mom hum hovering over their shoulder. And the funny thing is some of the classrooms had a mix. There was a classroom with three or four students around a camera. And then there were the individual learners at their homes. You could tell the difference. The kids who were learning together were like this. You know, connected, mm -hmm. connected and interested at home. We're like this. So, yeah, I think there's something about being with peers, classmates that also helps the learning, right? Because you feel uh, a little bit of pressure as a student. You want to be the first one. You want to know the answer. 
you know, so you have all of this motivation that you don't necessarily understand or can even uh, pinpoint, but it's there at home. Well, it's, that, you don't have it's that old story. My son, Sam, who came to Edinburgh with us uh, almost 15 years ago now, he said to me one time, Papa, you keep encouraging me to join ILEA, the Chamber of Commerce, all these groups. I actually meet with more people online through Twitter, through LinkedIn, in a single day than you do in a whole year. And I said, yeah, Sam, but let me ask you, those two grandchildren that you produced, did that happen online? <laughs> <laughs> and he went from red to red all the way up here. And I said, you know, sometimes it's more fun in person. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Also, there's something else to be said about that. I think you're remembered better when you're met in person. You know, somebody falls off a chat, somebody leaves a social media account behind. You don't re you don't remember they were there. Or or you forget their link. Or you forget the link, right? And that's the end of it all. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I'm not Alex supposed to leave these anymore. I'm, you know, HTTP backslash forward slash. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's right. That's going to be uh, posted on our arms at some yeah. point. <laughs> so Sam went to Edinburgh with you and he also wrote a book that you co-wrote with him. This is the, the book on greener meetings. Yes. Well, actually he wrote that book on his own. He came to Edinburgh to earn his master's degree in cultural management at the university where I headed a research center for 12 years. And when he wrote his master's dissertation, it was on the subject of greener events because the university where I was appointed is the greenest university in Scotland. It's won every award for carbon uh, footprint minimization, for, uh, um, for uh, sustainability, et cetera. So Sam really became interested in greener events. And prior to that, he was the sustainability officer for the Fringe Festival in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. So he was very interested in green uh, outcomes, even in the United States. So when he wrote this dissertation, he asked me to look at it. I did. And I said, you know, Sam, there are no books on greener events. And all the young people are interested in the environment. Why don't you send this to my editor in New York? See if they're interested. I didn't write her an introduction or a testimonial. I just gave him her email. And the editor, to my surprise, said, I want to publish this book. Wow. So by the time he was 24, I guess, he had published, he had written his and published his first book. So that's wow. incredible. And you, you have two sons. So you have Sam yes. and you have a son that's still in the States in New York. Yes, is, Max is, that correct? is our Max is our oldest son. Max is um, four years older than Sam. I can't tell his age because he's an actor. You know right, how that goes, right, right, absolutely. Don't give anyway, it up. Anyway, although I will tell you this, I told him when he turned that age recently, not to tell anyone because it made me look old. You know? <laughs> Max is a professional magician and actor. He starred on, been a guest star on a lot of uh, American television shows and, um, he uh, is now living for the time being in Florida because of the COVID virus. Ah. But what, what his uh, career was in New York, 
was he and his wife, who's a producer like your good self, created an off-Broadway show called The Amazing Max. And it ran for six years. And when the theaters were closed back in March of last year, he said, what am I gonna do? Well, they quickly pivoted to online. And do you know, he's appeared over 1000 times in magic experiences for families, children, etc. between March and right now. Wow. I'm so proud of him. Wow. So he's actually in Florida, enjoying the sunshine in the winter with his wife, but broadcasting like you're doing tonight with uh, Zoom, he does these experiences, Saudi Arabia, Japan, all over the world. That's, a, that's awesome. We yeah. need to connect with Max. Yes, we do. Uh, I was thinking, I actually, yes, I'm thinking about that too. Because magic is one of the disciplines that seems to, uh, it works for virtual. It, it transfers very nicely. You can get the engagement. You can still have the interaction with people. And so we have found as an agency that that is one of the disciplines that does, as we say, crossover to virtual. And if the magician has an attitude, yes. if the magician has a personality, you know, Anthony, you and I come from a different era in show business. Our era was filled with people with personality, mm-hmm. stars that had a real charisma. It's almost like today's generation, they've, they've dement- they don't want that. They're afraid to be too much out there. Well, Max has got an attitude and it comes across on camera. He does this close-up magic, and uh, that's what makes it work. Anybody can do a magic trick. It's how you perform the right, you know? yeah. right. And you know that those words couldn't be truer. I I proselytize myself that having somebody famous and an an actor at an event is not not always the right way to go. Really is based, it depends on that actor's personality, on that person's personality and ability to engage and interact with people because we have to cross the fourth wall in our world. You know, there are some times that you stay behind it, but most of the time you're, you're, you've crossed it and you want to engage people and you want that back and forth. And not everyone can do that despite how famous they are or how talented they are. So thank you for, for bringing that up. I have to admit, I, when I met you, I had no idea that you came from a theatrical background, that you were a magician yourself. I read that all and, uh, you know, I'm a little bit more familiar with your background, but would you care to share a little bit about how you made the transition from someone who was in the theater, an actor, performer, magician into events? Well, in my book, The True Joy of Life, I talk about how I, like Robert Frost in his poem, took the road less traveled by. And it's interesting because just today, a reporter from the Washington Post contacted me because he had made a couple of decisions in his life not to do things. And he wondered if he had done these things, how different his life might have been. So in my life, I started out as a mime clown performing children's birthday parties in Dallas, Texas, my hometown. Went through university. When I graduated from university, I went to Washington, D.C., and I literally 
bust past the hat in front of the FBI building where tourists would queue up, would line up for hours waiting to go in. So I had a, I had a uh, fixed crowd that wasn't moving. And I would sit on a suitcase and I'd put white face on and uh, then do uh, magic with children. And I'd walk away in a couple of hours with about $50, which was pretty good in 1975, 1976. Then I met my wife and she was a mime. And the way I met Nancy was one day I was walking by a studio, dance studio in Washington, DC. And there was a sign on the door that said, Linner the Clown Juggling Lessons. Well, I thought, Linner, it sounds like a guy. I'll go up the stairs and see, because the one thing I don't do is juggle. I'll learn how to juggle. So I start climbing the stairs and about halfway up, I saw the most curvaceous pair of legs I've ever seen in tights I'd ever seen. And then above it was the most beautiful curvaceous waist in a red leotard. And on top of that, well, I don't want to go into detail, but there was <laughs> a red ribbon with two gold bells. And on top of that, a white face with red hearts and little red nose and a crop of hair. And I didn't know if you've ever had this happen, but I fell instantly in love. Uh -huh. I never saw her face except for the mime face. It was like the arrow and boom. So we started dating. We got married a year later. Max came along a couple of years later, then Sam four years later. And we quickly transformed from performing at events to producing events because people would ask us, in addition to your act, do you know of anyone who could bring an elephant? Well, I didn't, but I learned how. Mm -hmm. And then I made connections with petting zoos and so on. And we started providing live entertainment for many, many shopping uh, centers, big shopping malls, dozens of them all over the United States. And we created a training program, training people to be producers, to go out and to coordinate those live events. And then after we produced the inaugural ceremonies for President George H.W. Bush, for Mrs. Bush, for the salute to the First Lady, I had an offer out of the blue, and also after I had sold my, uh, after we had produced the opening of Donald Trump's Taj Mahal Casino in Atlantic City, I had an offer from a man in Nashville, Tennessee, to purchase our company. Well, that doesn't happen very often, and I was quite frankly interested because our sons were becoming teenagers, and if you know anything about teenagers, that's the time where a man like me shouldn't be traveling 200 days a year to keep 14 people employed. I should be home helping Nancy and so on. Anyway, we successfully sold the company. We moved to Nashville, Tennessee. We didn't have to, but he offered his headquarters were there and we thought it would be a good place to raise our children. And um, everything went very well until the second year. Uh, and by the way, the reason we moved is because part of the bill of sale, the agreement was that I would stay with the firm for three years. And that's not atypical. It's pretty typical for an executive to, to go with the firm for a while for continuity. Anyway, on Thanksgiving Eve, 
I did as I've done for every year, picked up the phone to call my clients to thank them for their business, just to say, it's Thanksgiving. I want you to know I'm grateful to you for your long faith in me and so on. And the phone wouldn't connect. And Anthony and I thought, what is wrong? I never heard of such a thing. So finally, I got a hold of an operator and she said, the phone has been disconnected. I said, disconnected? So I went next door to the owner's office and he said, I'm having cash flow problems. Couldn't pay the phone bill. No one knew about any of this. We were totally surprised. Well, within a few days, the staff was gone. The front window had been broken in the business. Somebody had broken in to try and steal equipment to take back what they were owed and so on. It was horribly embarrassing. So I went to see our personal accountant and he said, you should just walk away right now because you've clearly, cleanly sold the business. You have no liability. This was not your fault. You need to walk away. So I did. And a few weeks later, the owner called me and said, would you meet me for breakfast? I've got an idea. <clears throat> so I said, okay, well, I'll meet him for breakfast. And he actually offered me $1. He said for $1, I could purchase the business. And of course, with it would come all the debt. Right. Well, you know, that wasn't what I wanted to do at 40. I had spent 20 years building this business from 20 to 40. And it just wasn't in my heart to do this again. So I declined. And about the same time, I was getting calls, Anthony, from um, lawyers all over the country, not related to the, to the business problems, but related to accidents that were occurring at events. Because I had by then written the first textbook in this field, lawyers would call me and ask me to serve as the expert witness mm -hmm. at trials. And I went all over the United States doing this. But to prepare for the trial, I had to go to the library and do some pre-work. And in doing research about these cases, I began to see the linkage between special events and established disciplines like anthropology, sociology, theology, and even this new emerging field, which was just happening at the time in the early 1990s, technology. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is interesting. I wonder if there's a curriculum within this, because I'd been teaching part-time at George Washington University uh, dance for many years, and I was very comfortable with teaching. Hmm. And just before I sold the company, one of the last events I produced was for Oprah Winfrey. And I saw her on uh, the news tonight because, you know, she's got this interview with Harry and Meghan, and it was great to see her again. And uh, when uh, I produced the event for Oprah, a live event for the charity Save the Children, I met her partner, fiance, whose name is Stedman Graham. Mm -hmm. And we became friends. And I sent Stedman a copy of my book and he wrote me a nice letter about it. And so I decided to call him in 1992 and say, I'm thinking of approaching universities, but I only have a bachelor's degree. I don't even have a master's. Without that, they're not gonna take me seriously. But if you and Oprah gave me a testimonial and endorsement, 
I think I could actually make this move forward. Would you do that? He said, let me think about it. So he came back a couple of days later. He said, I've spoken to Oprah and we've decided we like your idea and we will support it on one condition. What's the condition? That you first offer this curriculum in events management, which I called it, to those people who have historically been disenfranchised from business schools. And of course he met women and people of color because in those days, very few women were in business schools and hardly any people who were black, Asian, minority, ethnic, BAME. So I said, no problem. He said, great, I'll go with you to meet the presidents of the universities. Wow, wow. you can't do any better than that. So he flew to Nashville and we went to Atlanta and we met the president of Spelman, which is one of the oldest black historic universities. We went to Tennessee State University and all of them thought this was fabulous, but it was 1992 now, and it was the Iraq war. And there was a terrible financial crisis in higher education. No one had any money. Well, my wife simultaneously had been discussing my plans with an old friend in Washington, DC, whose husband was the Dean of the medical school. And he liked the idea for some reason, and he mentioned it to the president of George Washington University. A few days later, I got a call from the president's secretary asking if I would come to Washington and meet with the president. I went to Washington, met with the president, met with some faculty, and the offer was quite simple. If you'll come here to earn your master's and doctorate, we'll pay all your tuition fees, give you an office, give you a graduate assistant to help you with the research, and in return, within three years, we want you to create an undergraduate master's and professional executive certificate in events management. And GW would be the first in the world to have this. And so I had no plans of returning to Washington DC, but again, the road less traveled by, you have to go where the currents are flowing, where your heart is. So I went and between 1993, in 1996, I earned my master's and doctorate. I earned my doctorate in 96. In 2000, I was offered the deanship at a hospitality school in Rhode Island, John uh, Johnson and Wales University. I stayed there for two years through the horrific time of September 11th, mm -hmm. 2001. And then I was offered a post as executive director at uh, Temple University, a huge school, 50,000 students in Philadelphia. And finally, end of the story, out of the blue, one spring, I get a telephone call at Temple University in Philadelphia. Woman is speaking with a Scottish accent. She says, this is Kathy. I met you at an international conference. We've just received funding to set up a research center. Would you be interested in applying for the post? And I said, Kathy, I'm very flattered, but we've just purchased a home and I don't make these big decisions. My wife does, and I know what her answer will be. We have two sons here, etc. So we let it go. And then in August, she called back. She said, would you at least do a teleconference call with us? Well, as a courtesy, I thought I have to do this. We were at the beach. So I got out of my bathing suit, put on my business suit. In those days, there was no mm -hmm. Skype. So we had to go to a television studio where they had a big disc. 
and it was a terrible thunderstorm, so the signal wasn't working. So we used a mobile phone. And the three people who interviewed me, not only were they Scottish, but they were from Glasgow, oh. which is a very thick Scottish accent, right. and they tend to speak very fast. Right. And at the end of the interview, the dean said to me, pure, dead, brilliant. I thought, dead, that's it. Forget about it. I got in the car to drive back to Nancy, and sure enough, sure enough, the phone rings 10 minutes later. I remember because I was crossing a bridge over a body of water and the dean said, Joe, we like this very much and we'd like you to start next month. <laughs> wow. Now, do you know, do you know that um, getting an offer like that is not like the people in uh, Ocean City or um, uh, La Jolla calling you and saying, we'd like you to come up to La Jolla. This is a big life-changing experience yes. when you're invited to go to Scotland. We'd never been to Scotland before. So I get to the beach house, Nancy standing in the front yard with the two sons who were then, uh, I think, 22 and 26. And I said, the strangest thing just happened. What do you think? And I expected she'd say, that's it. Instead, she asked me three questions. She said, can we bring the dog? because we had a small dog for 17 years and sadly Kong passed mm. away a couple of years ago, but it was like a child for us. Of course. And they had just passed a new legislation in the UK, which allowed you to bring the dog right in if you did all the inoculations in the United States. Tick one box. Second box, can we afford a home, she asked. Well, like most Americans, I went on holiday with my laptop computer. So I looked on the computer, sure enough, we could afford a small home, but that would be fine because we were now empty nesters. Thirdly, because housing, by the way, in Europe is twice to three times as much as it is in the United States. So mm -hmm. that's why we needed a smaller house. And finally, she's asked, and you'll get a kick out of this. She asked, do they have any Jews? Now, Nancy converted to Judaism after we've been married 15 years. And if you know anything about people who are religious converts, they're a little over the top sometimes, right? <laughs> so I said, I don't know, let me Google it. Jews <laughs> in Edinburgh. My gosh, Anthony, it made Edinburgh look like Jerusalem. <laughs> Synagogues <laughs> on every corner, delicatessens in every neighborhood, <laughs> community centers with swimming pools. So based on those three yeses, she said, I think we should go to Edinburgh. Wow. And of course, I turned to my sons and I said, um, what do you think? And my oldest son said, Papa, you're 55 years old. If I had an offer like this, I'd jump at it. And if you and mom don't do this, we'll never forgive you. Because they wanted to come and visit and all this stuff. Anyway, away we went. We took the road less traveled by. We thought we'd stay a couple of years like I had done at other universities mm -hmm. and then move on. And now 15 years later, here we are, retired, two grandsons, Hamish and Guthrie. And um, it's all because we followed Robert Frost's advice. We took the road less traveled by. Yes. And you'll stay in Scotland. You think you'll stay now that you're retired? Oh, yeah. yeah. You're not coming one back. Of the reasons, one of the reasons we'll stay is the health care. 
Uh, I know you all have had challenges with the rollout of the coronavirus here. Um, it's so disheartening to me to hear these problems in my home country of the United States. Because here in Scotland, we have, as you know, in the UK, the National Health Service. And the best part of it is in Scotland. So Nancy and I get two weeks ago, a blue envelope in the mail. You're invited for your, we call it a JAG here. You would call it a shot for an inoculation. Mm -hmm. For your JAG, we show up a week later, there's no queue. 10 minutes we're in, 10 minutes we're out. We'll get another message in about a week or so uh, for the next one. Um, you know, at our age, having good health service is important. Thank goodness we're healthy. But Thank things goodness. can change. Right, right at any time. Yeah. So, and Sam is there and you've got your two grandkids there as well. So your family is there with, with the exception of Max and I'm sure right. he visits. Oh, he does. He's been over many times, he and his wife, Christine. And Sam works for a professional theater company here called the Capitol Theaters, which is similar to the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. Oh, yes. It's multiple the live theaters that bring in road shows and so on. Yes. He's the senior marketing executive. So he has a wonderful post in live theater, which he loves. And um, yeah, life, life is good despite the coronavirus. Yes, despite the virus. Do you still, theater is not open though yet in, in Edinburgh, but I'm sure you're hoping it'll, it'll open soon. Well, I just read in the New York Times yesterday that it has opened in Australia. Of course, Australia has a very, very low evidence of infection. Yes. And so they have the confidence to do that. Um, I don't know when it will reopen here. They're talking Broadway May, but I think it'll probably be autumn before Broadway reopens. Um, you know, hospitality and theater will probably be the last bits to come back. Yes, unfortunately, I, I wish I could disagree with you, but I, I don't see it happening any other way as well. Uh, it's been it's been difficult for so many people, as you know, uh, and unfortunately, the virtual option is just not the same, you know, and I'm sure that technology will continue to evolve and, you know, we'll have more and more tricks that we can employ virtually. But, you know, it's, it's just, it's a very distant second runner up, if you will, it just doesn't cut the cake as well. And uh, we have made the transition at Bellotta into virtual and have come up with some virtual packaging and some virtual options and producing. But, um, you know, the energy is just, it's not the same animal. And it's very hard to uh, bring the same kind of energy to it because it just doesn't, it doesn't come back. Uh, it doesn't come back to you. And it's, it's, we're waiting for it to open, you know, what can and we say? Part of it, part of it, Anthony, is what we were talking about earlier about teaching versus learning. We're very good at streaming events streaming programs like this. We're not as good as in, at engaging the audience on the other side of the screen. Yeah. And that's where the genius yeah. is. And that's why I tell meeting planners that they have to start thinking like television producers. Yes. They have to imagine that the person on the other side of the screen has a remote control. And their job is to keep them from 
fast forwarding or from recording for later or worse yet, changing channels, mm -hmm. you know? And that means the scripting has to be as tight as it is in um, uh, 21st century television. Yes. The graphics, the, uh, the um, uh, special effects have to be as, as uh, uh, and, and this is regardless of what the content is. You know, people say to me, well, when you're doing a lecture about medicine or what have you, people are there strictly for the content. It means maybe less special effects, but it doesn't mean eliminate None. special effects because that's a human being on the other side of that screen. And they have to be continually engaged. And it's, it's a, um, uh, if I was to tell your students at uh, uh, University of San Diego to uh, take an elective course, I would tell them they would take an elective course in television production. Because by learning how to be a television producer, it will help them with their live event production. Very good, very good advice for people. And uh, I will go so far as to say that planners in general don't have this expertise and need to acquire it somehow. There's a looseness that we still accept in events, live events that does not translate virtually, that it has to be buttoned up, it has to be tight. And it's, it certainly isn't easy. People in television, as, as glamorous as it may seem, it is a very difficult job, right? Hard because work. You, right. You have to think, to your point, about every moment. Every moment. Every has second. To, every right. second has to be scripted. And you know, the interesting thing is, one of the things that makes special events, live events, so fantastic is the serendipity. You can script the award show, but the funny bit, well, I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, David Zolker, produced the opening ceremonies of the Athens-Greece Olympic Games. And then he came to Edinburgh where he now stays and he produced the um, opening ceremonies of the Commonwealth Games. Well, one of the traditions in the Commonwealth Games is after the queen enters in her carriage and sits in the reviewing stand, the, uh, leader of the games, the chairman of the games, opens a metal baton. And in the baton is the speech that she will read. So the chairman of the game, standing next to Her Majesty the Queen, went to open it, and it wouldn't open. <laughs> and of course, the queen is sitting there, and she's going like this. You know, what right. is going on here, right. right? Finally, he didn't hit it on the, the table. But it finally, thank goodness, opened. Well, do you know, I, I teased my friend David and I said, David, you built that into the script, didn't you? To create a little <laughs> element of suspense because uh, you, you wanted to make sure people were gonna stick around to hear the queen read the speech. He wouldn't answer the question. But I will tell you this, when he produced the, the opening ceremonies for the games in Athens, you know the moment where the torch runner runs up and lights the um, uh, cauldron, right? Mm -hmm. As the torch runner ran, he tripped and fell. And I want you to know, I was in that stadium with 80,000 other people live in Athens. And I heard, Anthony, 80,000 people go like this. <gasps> 
It was a collective gasp. They held their breath, wondering, you know, in the history of the Olympic Games, this was the 100th anniversary, what's going to happen? Slowly he got to his feet. And you know what happened, the clapping, Thunderous, the roar. Right. The... And once again, I'm not so sure that that was an accident. You know what right. I mean? Right, right. So, so building this kind of serendipity into these online programs means it's human. Right. You know? Right. It's very important. I, I like yeah. to say that um, what we're missing in the virtual world is the energy on that day of the event when everybody comes together and is finally focused on what it is we've been working on for so long and is there and is present and that's what makes the magic happen. So that's no longer a piece of this now, right? Because everybody's in their own silo and we've got to work harder to, to make those last moments come to fruition because we don't have people gathered in a room with the stress of knowing that you know the curtain's gonna come up in 10 minutes, we've gotta be ready to go, all of that is missing. So uh, to your point, if there's some way to, to get that serendipity into the virtual event world, then we've gotta find it. It's, I think it's... you have to script it. I think you have to absolutely script it. And then, then when you have the problem of bad internet connection, et cetera, you have to have plan for that as well, plan B, C, and so on. I noticed last night on the Golden Globes, they showed some clips here. Some of the big stars in Hollywood had bad internet connections. Now, you know yes. something? It was forgiven because guess what? They're a star and people were waiting for their connection to be restored. And, and right. so, so um, I think this, this time that we're going through now the early days of the pandemic and i say early days because i'm afraid this is going to be with us for some time before we see the world return to what i call back to abnormal back to <laughs> right some sort of norm that we recognize <laughs> i think that we're in this period now where we're still stumbling whether it's virtual whether it's virtual streamed live, whether it's recorded and then streamed. But I think the future will be, we'll be a lot more comfortable with what you and I are doing today. And that it will be almost second nature to live stream every event. Yes. And part of that will be the aging population in the United States and in Europe. Because, well, I'll give you an example. I'm the treasurer of the Edinburgh Interfaith Association. And we've found within our faith communities that have been forced to go online, because as I told you, everything's closed, all the synagogues, churches, mosques closed, their attendance is the highest it's ever been. More people are tuning in online mm. than ever attended services in person. Now, does that mean when these places reopen, they're going to be empty? Not at all but it means that they've been able to expand their footprint. Right. And I think that's this is going to help the events industry. Yes, I completely agree. And quite honestly, that's what I'm trying to tell our clients yes. now that feel you know, the stress of all this. This is a great opportunity to expand that footprint. 
you may not convert them back to live, but then we keep the virtual element going as a piece of this meeting in perpetuity because it's going to help you to collect more and more people. So I'm so glad to hear you say that because it makes me feel like what I've been telling them is the right thing as well. <laughs> well, you, you are absolutely correct. And I will just add one final thing about that. Not only will you be able to convert them back to live, but they will spend more for the live experience mm -hmm. because it's much more multi-layered to have the live experience. There's the food and beverage aspect of it. There's the sense of smell, the, uh, uh, the, the, the olfactory. Uh, the live experience will never ever disappear. But here is what's going to happen. You know, we went from in the 1950s and 60s conventions. When conventions were held in San Diego, for example, people would come and stay for a week. Did you know that back oh, in the 50s, yes. 60s? Conventions lasted five nights, six days, you stayed for the weekend. Now the average convention in the United States is two nights, three days. Mm -hmm. I predict that will be one day and one night in the future. But people will still come to be able to shake Anthony's hand, to embrace him, to meet the man that they've seen and fallen in love with on camera and to build further trust. Then they'll stay, not for education, but for a holiday. Mm. Because one of the greatest places in the world a holiday is San Diego, California. Mm -hmm. So they will then stay for three, four days, three, four, five nights, on a holiday in the Pacific coast. So my prediction is that live events are going to be shorter in duration, sharper in content, and much shrewder in outcomes. People are going to come for the hospitality. I hope you are 100% right. And I'm going to bank on, on the fact that you are. So. And you know what, Dr. Joe, I, I, I hate to say that it's the silver lining because nobody wants COVID, nobody wanted it to come, right. but we were oversaturated in the event world, especially here in San Diego. There are events all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to think that this moment in time when we're not able to participate will make us want to participate even more when we're able to. And that this little vacation, if you will, from live events will in fact motivate us to go to more events when we're able to. Because we, we were seeing here in, in, in our city, especially with fundraisers, getting people to commit to a Saturday night was very, was becoming very difficult. I think we've surpassed that problem. I like to think that we have and that when we get back to it, people will be clamoring to come out again. So I'm going to look at that as a silver lining. From yeah. your mouth to God's ears, I, and I hope she's listening. I hope so, too. <laughs> I like you. I hope she's listening, too. <laughs> you just made a you friend know, out of Alex. I just have well, to you. Well, you know it's a she, Alex, because no fella could be that clever. No you know? way. No fella could be that clever. We are idiots. <laughs> Can I We're ask just Kind of a personal question different yes alex um but you you said you were at johnson wales 
did you ever cross over the little courtyard to one Chestnut Street to a little deli called uh, Dean's Deli? The name sounds familiar. You know, when you're a dean, you don't have any time to yourself. So I ate most of my meals at my desk while I was solving ah, okay. all the problems of the world. So, but I know exactly where you're talking about. Yeah, because it was owned by my family. I actually worked there for a summer, uh, almost a year. Because I are you a Rhode Islander? All of my mom's family is from Rhode Island, so I'm pretty much related to three quarters of the state. Anybody's Greek Sicilian, it's my family. Well, we loved living in Rhode Island, and we loved the, our favorite place was the Italian section, which yes. you know is called the Hill. Mm -hmm. We would spend a lot of time up on the Hill. Yep. I miss well, it there. Well, before we uh, let you go, we have a little mm -hmm. game we'd like to play with you, if you don't mind. Uh, it's just a little word association with you. Uh, I'll give you a word and you tell us the first thing that comes to mind. I think you might be familiar with this. You ready to go? Actually, actually um, our mutual friend, Nicole Matthews. Yes. Invited me to play word association with her. So go ahead. All right. Well, I'm going to have to tell Nicole that she wasn't allowed to do that, but that, <laughs> it's all right. She was the first one to come along. All right. Uh, first word, hospitality. Pride. Actually, love. 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 Joy. Joy. Nothing comes to mind. Joy. Yeah, there's a there's several words that relate to unyielding, to uh, foundation, to um, uh, compass. Um, I would say compass because my compass has always been set in my 68 years to try and move towards joy in my life. Uh, when the joy was no longer there, then I went in search of other joy. Compass. Organic. Events. Mm -hmm. Events do not happen from the top down. They always happen from the ground up. Mm -hmm. They're organic. And you know, the term event is derived from the Latin term, a venere, which means a for out, venere for come. So an event is literally an outcome. A venere. Uh, writing. Writing. Sweating. <laughs> I know that's right. Magic. I believe it was, I believe it was Hemingway who said, uh, writing is easy. You just sit in the chair and open a vein. <laughs> and someone else said, writing is um, one-tenth editing, nine-tenths sweating. Because uh, you're always trying to revise and revise. So, uh, And then, of course, I've written now, co-authored 39 books. And every time I got a contract from a publisher, I would think, oh my God, what am I going to do this time? It's right. different than last time. That's going to, that somebody will want to read page two of this right. book. So there's a lot of sweating that goes along with, well, you know, it's creativity. Uh-huh. I do, but uh, I'm, I'm still glad to hear you say it too, because I sweat on my own and didn't realize that uh, there were so many of us out there. <laughs> magic that's the difference that's the difference anthony between a professional and an amateur 
an amateur doesn't know enough to sweat. That's but a, a very good point. Is so determined to produce the highest quality that there's this pressure inside you sweat a little bit. Yeah. What was the next word? Well, it's magic. Oh, that's life. Life. You know, when you asked me at the top of this interview about um, <clears throat> the road less traveled, and while I'm not particularly religious, I don't attend to the to the dismay of my rabbi, the synagogue, very often. I do believe there's some force in the universe, and I call it, for want of a better word, magic, that moves us in the right direction. You know, that moves us towards the joy, that helps us to find the good over the evil. Um, and our job throughout our life is to catch the magic. It's out there. You just have to catch the magic. I like that. Community. Community. Life. Because there is all kinds of research data in medical science about the reasons why people have early death. And one of the top reasons is lack of community. The more social they are, especially as they age, the longer they live. So community has always been very important for me. Uh, I was, when I was a young man in my 20s in Washington, DC, I ran for public office and was elected an advisory neighborhood commissioner in Washington, DC. And I got to see month after month, all the troubles of the world brought to our commission meetings in the neighborhood. They wouldn't be things that an ordinary citizen sitting at home would pay attention to. But when you're a commissioner and you hear about the importance of a new playground, the importance of a school being closed, the importance of something as mundane as parking so someone can easily get to work every day, uh, you realize that we're all in this together. And um, that's one of the reasons I've always loved the events uh, uh, vocation. I've never called it a profession. I've always called it a vocation. It's a calling like the ministry or medicine or nursing. It's a vocation because it's healing. It brings people together for a common purpose. And then the outcome is something better than the income. Hmm. Great answers. All right, education. Never ending. You know, when I was 40, I went back, as I told you, to university to earn my master's and doctorate. Do you know I was 20 years older than the people in my doctoral class? Gosh, I felt like an idiot because I'd been out of university for 20 years. I had stopped learning how to learn. And yet I was always the first one at class the last one to leave in the evening because I was so hungry for this knowledge at 40 years of age. So at whatever age, and of course that's the wonderful thing about uh, Zoom and about Teams and about Skype and these other platforms, Google, we are able to continually improve ourselves day after day, day after day, and the world is our oyster. I sit here in Edinburgh and I have learned men and women from all over the world coming into my desktop lecturing. 
So as you say, there are some good outcomes of the pandemic, and that's one of them, the time to learn. So Dr. Goldblatt, I, I should tell you, I'm going back to school myself in August uh, to get a master's in event management, because uh, I, I agree, it's a good time to, and I'm 58, and I haven't been in school since I got my bachelor's, so it's going to be tough, but uh, thank you. You just gave me a little bit more motivation. I am so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Now, I'll give you the one tip that I received when I went back to get my master's. The president of a university actually gave me this tip, an African-American university. He said, Joe, get to know the top professor at that program, whoever it is, the one who everybody else respects, and never leave their side. In other words, look at them not just as a professor, but as a mentor. Ask them if you can ask them additional questions. Can you email them? Read everything they've written, you know? Because that way you have kind of a benchmark to follow as you, and it's not the one who's necessarily the greatest lecturer or um, the most charismatic, but it's the, the North Star that everybody at the university looks up to, because that's what, what you're going to be when you graduate. You're going to be, be uh, uh, a reflection of that, of that individual. Uh, and then, of course, just keep going because there will be days like when I went back to school, I had to take Anthony at 50, at 40 years of age, I had to take statistics. Oh my gosh. Just to get accepted to George Washington University. Oh my. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I, well, I passed. That would have been the end for most people. <laughs> like, okay, good just, for you. I just passed. I also had to take economics, macroeconomics. Oy. I just has but the point is there will be days where you think oh god i'm 58 years old am i crazy right never give up you never give up thank you for that thank you so much i need that kind of motivation uh and call me anytime you're ready to say these guys i mean for one thing these guys are teaching events you've been doing events for 40 years or 30 years you know and so there'll be times where you'll be frustrated at the theory rather than the practice because you're hearing more theory than practice and so anytime you get frustrated email me or call me and i'll tell you how i got over that hurdle thank you yeah. thank you thank you i will absolutely i know i'm going to be frustrated i know i am <laughs> i just know it i'm a frustrated guy so it's gonna happen i got three more words okay hardware. Go. hardware. Oh, well, you know, my father, may he rest in peace, Papa owned a hardware store for 46 years. Tools. Uh, in Papa's hardware store, he carried a brand called Goldblatt Hardware. In Louisville, Kentucky, there was a wholesale, there was a manufacturer who made levels, trowels, hammers under the name Goldblatt. Really? So Max Goldblatt sold Goldblatt tools, which I thought was great. Well, the funny thing is, when I came to Edinburgh years ago, I realized because we're a very old medieval city, we have lots of very old clubs and traditions. And one of our clubs or one of our traditions is we still have the original trades here. We have the Candle Makers Guild. We have the... Um, um, the um, uh, 
people who make the barrels. I'm trying to remember their name. But for my guild, there's one called the Hammerman. And I asked the uh, deacon of the Hammerman, how do I join a group like that? He said, do you have any experience with hammers? I said, do I have experience? Do I have experience? And I told him, and he said, well, what have you done with your career? I said, well, I've written 39 books. He said, well, you hammered the keys. For <laughs> You're now a hammerman. <laughs> so, the point is that hardware is just a tool. It's not the heart. It's not the heart. It's a tool. This computer that we're using, the internet, a technology is a tool. So you must master the tool, but then you must layer it with creativity and imagination and innovation and emotion, or it's just a dumb box, just a tool. Uh, uh, very well said. Yes. Scotland, so Scotland. Home. Mm. You know, it's funny. Uh, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and uh, it took me until I was 18 to get out of Dallas, and then I went to Austin to get my bachelor's degree, and then I went at 25 to Washington, D.C., and then I've lived in Washington, D.C., Nashville, Tennessee, back to Washington for the doctorate, Providence, Rhode Island, which we loved, Philadelphia, which we also loved, because again, I like places where there's Italians, you guys. There's a big <laughs> Italian section there you outside go. of, of um, I've been to Italy 40 times, because we had a fan, we had an aunt who lived there, so we've been many wow. times. Um, but Scotland felt like a combination of all of it. It has the natural beauty of some of the places in Texas, the, the prairie, the mountains, etc. It has people who don't suffer fools gladly, who are very much like Texans, you know, they're, they're rough and tumble and serious. It has uh, a gentleness to its soul, but more importantly, it has this period called the Scottish Enlightenment, which took place in the 18th century. And that period was just after John Knox, the ordered all of his followers to learn to read the Bible. And by ordering them to learn to read the Bible, they could read everything else. So Scotland by the 16th century was the most literate nation in Europe. 80% of the people could read and write. Mm. In the rest of Europe, it was about 25, 30%. And so there's something about the hunger for the intellect, about the desire for creativity and knowledge. If you've ever read the book, How Scotland Invented the World, you'll see that television was invented in Scotland, Alexander Graham Bell, the telephone from Scotland, um, the uh, scan for uh, uh, babies, the ultras uh, ultrasound invented in Scotland, uh, and on and on and on. There's this spirit of, of innovation, of creativity, of, of pioneering that, um, and now there is a real thirst for independence. And I've been active politically for the last 10 years with our national party to help Scotland become 
an independent country in Europe. So there's this momentum among the Scottish people to want to be independent, to be free, to build a new nation. Could there be anything more exciting than that at 68 years of age? No. Part of something like that, you know? <laughs> and Scotland has you and Nancy well, and Sam well, and Guthrie. And I, I think most of the time they raise their eyebrows and go, oh my God, how did they get in? You know? <laughs> however, however, to my surprise, last year in 2019, before the pandemic, I was having dinner at the annual dinner for the Chamber of Commerce, Edinburgh Chamber of Commerce, 800 people in the ballroom. And they were describing the person who would win their Lifetime Achievement Award. And Nancy squeezed my hand and she said, I think they're describing you. They didn't even tell Nancy. And indeed it was me. So one of my students who now works for the chamber, or worked for the chamber then, was standing behind me in the chair. And the reason she stood behind me was she wanted to make sure I didn't get up and go to the men's room, you know, right, right. that I would be there. She learned from somebody about event management, you know? Anyway, she walked me up to the stage and I said to the president of the chamber, may I say thank you to the audience? And she said, yes, but there's one further message for you tonight. I said, what? The lights in the ballroom go down and on each of the four walls of the ballroom on giant screens, pardon me, It's the first minister of our country. Oh my. Of our country. And she simply says, I can't think of anyone more deserving. Thank you for coming to Scotland for your contributions to business, to education and uh, best wishes. Oh my. Now, how many places in the world could a guy from Dallas, Texas who grew up with his father owning a hardware store, starting out as a mime, end up at the end of his life on a platform with the head woman, the first minister talking to me. So it was, uh, it reminded me of, do you remember this uh, movie called Yankee Doodle Dandy? Oh yes. You remember when Jimmy Cagney <laughs> has that meeting in the last scene with President Roosevelt? Mm -hmm. And he starts tap dancing down the stairs. That's kind of what it felt like. You oh know? my. Wow. That's incredible. Well, Dr. Joe Jeff Goldblatt, you uh, you make us all tap dance downstairs. You are you are the most wonderful, the most accessible. Your brilliance, your your friendliness, everything about you is just remarkable, and we're so grateful that you spent an hour with us today. Thank you. We have hellos from everyone, from Jackie, from Steve Campbell. Hellos, hellos, hellos. Uh, and we hope that you'll come back. Yes. Maybe sometime well, in the I hope, future. I hope both of you, once we get this pandemic in our rearview mirror, will come visit us one day uh, in Scotland because Gosh, we'd love to see you on our side of the pond as well. And I'll arrange for you to speak to the students at the university here where I taught uh, about your careers. Uh, you know, they, they they would love that very much. And Anthony, I said uh, in writing to you, uh, I don't know if you got my note that I posted to you in San Diego, but um, I said to you by email 
how much I appreciated that generous gesture to support the construction of the Edinburgh Jewish Cultural Center. Absolutely. It means so much to us when folk like yourself do something like that. And um, I'll be ever grateful to you. So thank you. Well, absolutely. We support you, Dr. Joe Jeff. We love you. And we will see you in Scotland. That That's, much we can promise. I, as, I said my, this. as my father used to say, is that a threat or a promise? It's yeah. both. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in Scotland, you. in Scotland, we have a toast. The toast is not cheers. That's our English friends. We say Solange. Solange means help. Solange. But when we really love two folk, as I do you and Alex, we add a little more Gaelic to the toast. And the toast is not Solange Ava, which means to your good health, but we say Solange Avor, to your great health. And then we add, and that means to your great health when I see you and even when I don't see you. So it means all the days of your life. Salam Javor. Salam Javor. God bless. Thank you, Dr. Joe. You can find us at Bolada Entertainment on Instagram or at www.bolada.com. Just click on the podcast tab to leave your questions about events or entertainment. And also, please remember to like us and subscribe to us wherever you find us and leave five shiny, delicious stars on Apple Podcasts, please. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.